never to shake. I will never, no, never, no, never forsake. That's although all hell should endeavor to shake. I will never, no, never, no, never forsake. Lord, this morning we just declare that you are King of Kings and that um, you are our firm foundation. Lord, I ask that you would speak through Zach this morning. And in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you guys for leading us. I hope you enjoyed spring break. Um, anybody enjoy spring break? Some people are like, there was even spring break. Um, our family had a, a really fun spring break. Um, we went to the desert. And rode motorcycles. And so we kind of looked at the weather app and found a spot where it was going to be warm. 70, mid-70s is kind of what we were looking for. And we drove until we got there. And uh, we ended up outside of uh, Roswell, New Mexico. And we put up our little pop-up camper. And the boys and I rode motorcycles while Jennifer worked. And uh, the boys and I had a great time. And Jennifer got a lot of work done. Um, we rode some epic stuff, and so we rode, we rode this place, it was called Haystack OHV area, and I'm so proud of our boys, like what they were able to do at the beginning of the week by what they were able to do at the end of the week was like there's a lot of growth as young riders, and so we would be riding along, and there were just a lot of like really kind of as you're riding, riding motorcycles, you just can't go anywhere. You'll obviously wreck. They just won't go anywhere. And the line that you pick and take on your motorcycle matters. And so I would be riding along places and lots of like these kind of cliff, cliff kind of hill climbs. And so I'm riding and I'm going up, you know, and I'm like, you're just picking like the right line. And if you don't hit the right line, you're going backwards down the hill or you're going off the side. Like it's, it's fairly dangerous. And so in riding, like just constantly, my, my eyes this week were on picking the right line. And I'll tell you, I'm going to brag here a little bit. I'm going to probably wreck later today, but I didn't wreck all week. I picked the right, right line every time. And so it, it matters that you're up high sometimes. You're, you're kind of on a, some sort of a plateau. And off, off of one side, it's going to cause you to wreck. Off the other side, is going to cause you to wreck. You just have to stay on the right path. You have to stay on the right trail. Well, for me, as I'm thinking about that, the consequences are actually higher. It's not just me that I'm thinking about. Because if I wreck, I wreck. And, you know, there's a key man policy. Like, if I were to die, uh, the church would do well. Jennifer would, the boys would do well. There's life insurance. So not a problem. But the boys were following me, right? The boys were following me. And they would watch the line that I would pick, and they would pick that line. And it's not just like, hey, they were following and being cautious and waiting, it was like, no, Dad did it. We're going to do it. Right, right behind me. And so I felt, I felt very, very much this week the weight of the two ditches. We talk about this at church quite often, that there are two ditches. And when it, when it comes to our faith and it comes to Christianity, that we have to follow the right path. And there's a lot of analogies. Obviously, one of those analogies is that the, they're wide is the road that leads to destruction. Narrow is the path that leads to the kingdom of God. Narrow the path that leads to heaven. But when we talk about these two ditches, often in our church, so the, the one on the right or the one on the left, we're typically talking about legalism 
or antinomianism. Those are the two things. And so uh, legalism is, is kind of clinging to the law, while anti- antinomianism is clinging to, to grace. Those are the two ditches. Well, today, our text is going to steer us away from the ditch of legalism. So today, we're going to be confronted of, by what legalism does to us. And so, as we open up God's Word to Luke chapter 6, continuing uh, from where Buddy le- left off last week, we're going to be in uh, Luke chapter 6, verse 1. Uh, as we go there, I want to first start off with my big truth. And here's the big truth. Is Jesus is Lord of every day. We're going to see in this passage today that Jesus is Lord of the Sabbath. But I want you to understand, it's not just Lord of the Sabbath. He's Lord of every day. And not just every day, but every second and every minute and every hour of the life that you live. Jesus is Lord, whether you recognize it or not. So, starting in Luke chapter 6, verse 1. On a Sabbath... While he was going through the grain fields, his disciples plucked and ate some heads of grain, rubbing them in their hands. But some of the Pharisees said, why are you doing what is not lawful to do on the Sabbath? And Jesus answered them, have you not read what David did when he was hungry? He and those who were with him, how he entered the house of God and he took and ate the bread of the presence, which is not lawful. For any but the priest to eat, and also gave it to those with him. And he said to them, The Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. On another Sabbath, he entered the synagogue and was teaching. And a man was there whose right hand was withered. And the scribes and the Pharisees watched him to see whether he would heal him on the Sabbath, so that they might find a reason to accuse him. But he knew their thoughts, and he said to the man with the withered hand, Come and stand here. And he rose, and he stood there. And Jesus said to them, I ask you, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, to to save life or to destroy it? And after looking around at them, all he said to them, Stretch out your hand. And he did so, and his hand was restored. But they were filled with fury and discussed with one another what they might do to Jesus. All right, so now let's back up to verse 1 and let's begin to, to take this apart. Our aim today is to exposit the text, to bring it apart. There is a lot here. At first reading, it may not seem like there's a lot, but we've got a lot to unpack today. And so, on a Sabbath, so Sabbath, sixth day of the week, Right, started at sundown of Friday night. That's when that's when it started, and would go to uh, uh, sundown of the next day. So on a Sabbath, while he was going through the grain fields, his disciples just plucked with their hands and ate some some grains, rubbing them together in their hands to soften them, to to mill them, if you will. And the Pharisees saw him doing this. So the the Pharisee says, but. But some of the Pharisees said, why are you doing what is not lawful to do on the Sabbath? And so here's my first big idea. And it's this, is that legalism is a cruel God. 
Um, we have many idols in our life. We create many, many idols, many, many false gods that we worship. And legalism is one of them. Legalism is a religion unto itself. It has the rule and the law as its God, and it is a cruel God. It's horrible to live under the confines, uh, confines of legalism. Legalism is the conviction that law-keeping is now, after the fall, the ground of our acceptance with, with God. The idea that if we behave in a certain way, God will accept us. That if our behavior is pleasing to God, he will be for us and not against us. And so, legalism it is following the, what, what the Bible teaches, or we perceive the Bible to teach, to every dot in every iota. That's actually the language of the Bible. The Pharisees, who we're dealing with in this, this passage, they, they were very prudent in keeping the law of the Bible. They, they, they thought, man, we've got to follow every dot in every iota. Um, I, feel, I feel sure that in a room this size, that there were, there were a number of people who were, were raised in more of a legalistic faith tradition, legalistic church environment. And um, in that environment, I, I didn't grow up in that environment. I grew up, in a, in a, I grew up with a pastor who grew up in a legalistic environment and had a grace awakening. Therefore, he swung the pendulum to antinomianism. But many of you probably grew up uh, hearing things like women uh, must have head coverings. Women must wear dresses and can't wear pants or some other form of, of legalism. Like what, what, what is the, the Lord's day and how do you obey the commands and what must you do? And it, and it builds up in you this pride of man-made religion of keeping the law. Now... Legalism isn't just a Christianity issue. It's a humanity issue. You can look around all over and you will find legalism. You will find people who by their own moral compass, and so often that moral compass is magnetic north, is way off. That by their own kind of moral compass, they're living to a certain, certain moral or ethical code. And if they think they do those things, they will earn favor and be in the next life. Um, you know, karma will be real and the next life will be better. Or they'll, if there is a God, they'll find an acceptance with him and they're just being good humans. And, and uh, you know, the, the purpose is just to become a, a well-adjusted uh, adult and to be good to other people. And so there's like this, this kind of moral compass. And legalism creeps into that. Now, I think just a very easy example of seeing legalism is to look in uh, the American political landscape. And on the right and the left. So I want you, if you think about um, liberalism, and you kind of think about what we would call the, the, the left in our political landscape, just a few years ago, it was, it was enough to say, okay, if you're going to be accepted within the, the political left, you must accept the lesbian gay community. You, you must. And so um, people did, right? And so people just, okay, this is what we must, must do. We're going to accept this kind of new rule. 
I want you to even think, if you just go back to the start of Obama's administration in 2012, this wasn't true, but this became true. And by the time, you know, uh, 2016 was, I'm sorry, it would have been 08. The start of his was 08. But, but by the time uh, 16 got there, I mean, it was, the, it was the law of the land that you must accept the LGBTQ agenda to be considered um, in good standing with the left. The law got there. And so there were many people... There's many examples of this, people who were, in fact, gay, lesbian, uh, guys who were gay, who were, were involved in the, the, the political activist kind of, kind of lane. But then when the law changed, the legalism changed, it's not, now it's not, not just that you must accept the LGBTQ agenda, it's that you also must accept the trans agenda. You must, you must accept gender ideology, and when people rejected it. When people that we would say were very much in the liberal lane rejected that, then what happened to them? They got canceled. You're no longer, you're no longer toting the, the, the legalism line that we have. You're not following the new law, so therefore you're out. Therefore, the right's just as guilty of it. The political right, it's the same thing. They're also, also very legalistic. And, and, and again, the lines move. If you want to back up to a, a, a 2,000 year uh, George W. Uh, Bush voting Republican and kind of look at a lot of their politics, by the time, and they were considered conservative, far on the right, by the time we had the election in 2016 and, and the, the Trumpisms came in and the laws had changed and what was okay to accept and okay what was to reject. The, your stance on immigration from 2000 needed to change drastically by 2016 to be accepted by the political right. And if you don't accept it, guess what? You're a liberal. You're a moderate at best. And so the legalism that happens, it's very much like, no, we're doing it right, you're doing it wrong. It changes. It's a moving line. And there are... are, are Holding and grasping, it is my right view that's going to have me in the right relationship with whatever powers that be that I need to be. Our hearts bend that way. It's not everybody's hearts. Truth is, my heart doesn't bend towards legalism. My, my heart bends towards grace and freedom and rebellion. But so often our hearts do. So often those um, who in their in their rule-keeping, are able to obey, are able to look good on the outside, really struggle with this. And so they struggle, and they so often see the speck in somebody else's eye without acknowledging the log in their eye. And so we get here, and this is what the Pharisees are doing. They, legalism is their God, and it's a cruel God. And so they find great fault with what the disciples are doing. Now, we, at first reading of this, we may say, well, is it because the disciples are stealing? Because they're walking through their neighbor's grain field, and they're picking grain. And they're, they're, they're eating the grain from somebody's field. That didn't belong to them. They didn't grow it, but they're, they're eating it. That's actually not the problem. There's actually provision for that in the Old Testament. In, in the Old Testament, so much of how it's written, it is meant to care for the sojourner. It's meant to care for the, uh, the, the, the poor and the hungry. And so there were all sorts of provisions in the Old Testament that allowed people who were sojourning to eat. And so 
Uh, Deuteronomy chapter 23, it says, If you go into your neighbor's vineyard, you may eat your fill of grapes, as many of you wish, but you shall not put any in your bag. If you go into your neighbor's standing grain, you may pluck the ears with your hand, but you shall not put a sickle to your neighbor's standing grain. So you couldn't go harvest their grain. You couldn't go harvest their crop. But while you were crossing their, their land, you could take of the crop. Now, I'll tell you, that doesn't work in our, our context. Okay, that, the, our, that does not apply here. If you go to King Supers this afternoon and start eating grapes without paying for them, you'll get in trouble. Uh, growing up, uh, down the road from my house a couple miles, this guy had a watermelon patch. And um, he comes in his watermelon patch, and he um, finds a watermelon busted up where somebody had sat there and, and just eaten on it and just, like, consumed this watermelon right in the middle of his watermelon patch. And the farmer got mad about it. And so the farmer comes back, and he puts his son, and it says, private property, no trespassing, whatever. One of these watermelons is stolen. Eat at your own risk. I'm, not, I'm, I'm sorry, poisoned. One of these watermelons is poisoned. Eat at your own risk. The next day, the farmer came back, and there was another sign that said, now two of them are. <laughs> Eat at your own risk. And that's how the feud started between the Hatfields and the McCoys. Um, that doesn't work in our context, but it worked in their context. They would have understood this. So this wasn't the problem. It wasn't that they were eating the grain. The problem is that the Pharisees thought they were breaking laws about the Sabbath. And so, man, in our culture, we, we, we don't understand Sabbath very well. Um, and we hear the idea of Sabbath. We latch onto it, but we latch onto the wrong things. And so, um, here's where Sabbath comes from. It comes from Exodus chapter 20. Um, Man, this is, remember, remember the, remember the Sabbath day and keep it holy. Remember, that's, a, that's one of the ten, ten Commandments. And so we see this instruction given by Moses uh, from God. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter, your male servant or your female servant, or your livestock or the sojourner who is within your gates. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea, and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. And so here's the reality behind the Sabbath is that the, the Lord puts this pattern for us that, that in, in our lives, that this was what was right and good for humanity, that he worked for six days and he rested on the seventh. And, and as humans, as he made us, we are not made for continual labor. And though it feels like we should labor, it feels like we're always following behind, it paints this picture for us that God will care for us, that we can take a day off, and the Lord will still provide. And so it's a faith issue. It's teaching us to trust in God, trusting that he will provide. Jesus, in, in Mark's account, Mark, Mark tells that Jesus says this. He says, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. And this was a good gift that God gave us. But this isn't God. This is, this is a blessing to man. Now, I just want to step back from the text today and just make sure we can wrap our new covenant um, 
to make sure that we're not putting uh, new patches on old clothes or putting new wine in old wineskins, right? This is what we, we learned last week. This is not the old covenant. We live under the new covenant. Jesus came. He fulfilled uh, the, the Sabbath. We no longer have to keep the Sabbath. Rather, we keep the Lord's day. There's a reason why we worship on the first day of the week rather than Saturday. And it's because we worship on the day that the Lord was risen. However, we still should give Sundays to the Lord. Now, I'm not a strict Sabbatarian by any means. Do I think some people are going to have jobs and have to work on Sunday? Absolutely. And sometimes we, we see provision in the Bible. Your ox is in the ditch. It's what you have to do. But what is best is that you give Sunday to the Lord. That Sunday isn't a day of work. It is a day of, of rest. Um, I think that works out different for us. We live in a different, we don't live in an agrarian society where we work and, and use our muscles. Most of us sit behind cubicles, right? Most of us uh, sit behind computers. We do those things. And so if on Sunday afternoon you've worshiped and it's like, hey, I, I want to go play tennis. Man, go play tennis. Like, I want to go for a run on Sunday. Well, go do some physical exercise. You need it, Right? That we get off, I think, a lot of times in the legalism of it, even thinking about how we think about the Lord's Day and we think about Sabbath. Here's the truth. You were created for work. You were meant to work. And so you ought to work and you ought to work hard. Your body needs it. I think one of the things that's caused our, our mental health decline and so much stress and anxiety in our world is that we don't work our bodies the way that God intended us to do them. And so, man, if that means you need to take up running or working out or whatever, maybe you do. But you need to have a, a, a work that is not just physical, but a, a, a work that's, that's contributing to our orderly society. And you need to work. Praise God, for most of us, that just means five days, right? But you need to, need to work, but you also need to rest. Those are the, the two realities. Um, your work can do without you one day. It's a faith exercise. I know we've got small business owners in our church. It's a faith exercise for you to take a day off. We've got college students. Time management, I'll talk about that later. Um, you don't have nearly as much to do as you think you can do. You can get your work done in six days, and you can take a day, and you can worship the Lord. And so, but we're not legalistic about it. It's not saving us. We need rest and work. We need both of those things, but listen... Our legalistic hearts want to add rules. We're rule adders. And so this is what happened with the Pharisees. The Pharisees are, are mad about the, the Sabbath. There's only one real problem here. Is that nothing that they did, nothing that they did walking through the, the field, taking the grain, is prescribed in Scripture to be a sin. There's nothing that says in the Bible that they, could, that they they could not do that on a Sunday. They've added to the Word of God. There's an ancient Hebrew text. It's called the Mishnah. There's other places that these lists can be found. But in the Mishnah, there's 39 uh, clarifications on work in the Sabbath. In each category of that 39 that the Pharisees added to it over time is capable of like these endless subdivisions. They would just sit around and debate and debate and add to it and add to it. And so in, in, in the Mishnah, not in a biblical text, but in their text, 
there's reaping, threshing, and winnowing. So when they reaped, they plucked heads of grain. They were considering, so think about what it means to go reap a harvest, to, to go and cut down the harvest. They're saying, no, when they plucked those heads of grain, they were, uh, they were reaping. And then uh, if you think about the threshing floor that you would hear about in the Old Testament, they would grind the grain and the winnowing forks. They would separate the chaff. They're saying, oh, then, then when, when you rub them in your hands, you are threshing and winnowing them when you rub them together. So you're, you're basically shelling the, shelling the wheat. And then when you pop that food in your mouth, that was you preparing food on the Sabbath. Gotcha. Gotcha. Doesn't that sound ridiculous? That's what our legalistic hearts do. Our legalistic hearts want to add to the gospel. And this is what I want you to know is that the gospel plus something equals nothing. But the gospel plus nothing equals everything. Verse 3. And Jesus answered them, Have you not read what David did when he was hungry? He and those who were with him. How he entered the house of God and he took and he ate the bread of the presence which is not lawful for any but the priest to eat. And also gave it to those with him. And he said to them, The Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. And so here's my next big idea. Is the law is not Lord Jesus is. The, the, the law is not Lord. Their made-up rules are not Lord. Jesus is Lord. To understand this passage, we've got to understand David's situation. David, um, think about David when he killed Goliath. Uh, Saul was the king. Um, God was the king of Israel, and the people grumbled to, to, to God and said, we want a king like everybody else. They chose, they chose Saul. They chose a bad king. God, in, in, in Saul's rebellion to him, God raises up David to replace him. Uh, by, by rights, it would have been Jonathan's, uh, his son, but even Jonathan understood the Lord's hand is on David. David is the anointed David, who's going to be the next king. And so Saul gets jealous of David, and Saul seeks to kill David. His, Saul, in Saul's mind, the way to not be replaced as king was to kill the one who would come after him and be king. It was to, to kill David. And so David is running. He's in, in the wilderness. He, he's, got this, he's got this band of, of men of valor, these mighty warriors who are with him. They're running. They're not trying to wage war against Saul. They're just trying to survive. And so they're, 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 they're running. And so um, we, see, we see them come into the temple with um, Amalek. And, it, and they go in with Amalek. And Amalek is going to take these loaves of bread called the bread of presence and give it to them. And so here's the problem is that those loaves of presence that were, were, were in the temple, they weren't meant for just anybody. They were meant only for the priests to eat. So the bread of presence, uh, you can read about this in Exodus 25. Um, 
They, they would have been in the sanctuary right outside, in, in, the, in the temple, outside of the holies of holies. Um, there were 12 loaves, and they were placed on this table. The table was one of the things, like if you read about kind of the, the candlestick or the lampstand or whatever, it's like one of those things. It's adorned in gold. It's got very specific measurements that are given, very specific things that are supposed to be on it. And there's these 12 loaves of bread. And the loaves represented the 12 tribes of Israel. And, and the, the loaves on the bread, outside of the holies of, of holies, they symbolize the constant fellowship of the Israelites with God, tribe by tribe. And so the picture was painted is that, that each of those tribes was constantly a guest at God's table. That each of those tribes was consecrated wholly to God. That, that God was going to commune with his people. And so, and by the, so by the means of these loaves, there, there, was, there was this presentation by the priest that was offering uh, sacrifice to God, acknowledging their indebtedness and dependence on him. And so those loaves are important. Those loaves, what would happen is that once a week they would get replaced. And at the end of the week, only the priest could take and cut and eat of the loaf. So it wasn't meant for anybody. And so Jesus uses this illustration. He, he says to them, So when David was hungry, and he and those were with him, they entered the house of God, and they took and ate the bread of presence, which is not lawful. So they broke the law. But yet this is David's God's anointed. So we think, we read this, and we think, oh, when your ox is in a ditch, when the, when the person's starving, it's okay to break God's law. We should be able to do that. Well, well, no. I mean, if that were the case, they would constantly be feeding the 12 loaves to the hungry. It's actually missing the point. What's actually happening is David is coming in and saying, no, I, I've got divine privilege here. I can eat this bread. Amalek looks at him and realizes, believes that this is the anointed king. This is the one who's to come. And if he wants to eat this, the loaves of bread, he's the king. He can eat it. He's got divine privilege. And so he gives it to him. Saul later finds out about it. It costs Amalek his life. He ends up, he ends up having him killed because he did it. David, in eating that bread, was, de was declaring what was going to be true in the future, divine privilege. This is what Jesus is doing. Jesus is saying, I've got divine privilege here, Pharisees. You just need to back up. I'm the king. I'm the Lord of the Sabbath. This, this is who, this, the Son of Man is the Lord of the Sabbath. I have divine privilege. And it is going to be these people who, who by, by me are going to be able to commune, are going to be able to eat and, and sup, as the, as the King James Version says, sup with, with God. They're going to have communion with God. And so there's this great statement. This is one of seven statements that's made in, uh, I'm sorry, rather nine statements that's made in the book of, of Luke where Jesus is saying, no, I am Lord. I am Lord of the Sabbath. This day belongs to me. 
I am the one who is in control. I am the one who is ruling. Verse 6, on another Sabbath, he entered the synagogue and was teaching. And a man was there whose right hand was withered. And the scribes and the Pharisees watched him to see whether he would heal on the Sabbath so they might find a reason to accuse him. Isn't that interesting? Like, they're so tuned in to what Jesus is doing. And over and over on the Sabbath, they're trying to trip him up. And I'm just going to make this short for the sake of time. Is that we're just like the Pharisees. So often, we look for fault with Jesus so we don't have to submit to him. This is so often how people approach and read the Bible who, who don't yet have faith in Christ. Just like, just like the Pharisees. That they would, they would read it and say, man, will he, feel, will he heal on the Sabbath? Because if that's him, he's, that means he's bad and we don't have to submit to him. And so we read the Bible and we look and we try to justify our actions by finding fault with Jesus. And we say, oh, he was a good philosopher, but was he really God? Did Jesus really say this? Well, if Jesus really said this, then can he be good? Rather than realizing that Jesus is Lord and what he says is good. And therefore, what we arrive at, what is good, we arrive at our morals and our ethics from God's word. We calibrate or set the standard of truth to Jesus, not the other way around. And so they were looking to trip him up. But... Verse 8 says, he knew their thoughts. And he said to the man with the withered hand, come and stand here. And he rose and he stood there. And Jesus said to them, I ask you, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, to save life or to destroy it? Now, remember, he knew their thoughts. That's the very first thing it said. So he knew what they were thinking. And so he asked, like, I think he already knew they wanted to destroy him. They knew in their heart, their, their hard hearts weren't just about keeping the law and doing good. He knew that they wanted to kill him. And so here they're making an issue of, are you going to heal this man with a withered hand? Now, is Jesus saving his life by... Uh, Healing him, giving him a, a hand that works. Well, it probably could have waited till Sunday. Probably didn't have to be done on Monday. I mean, on, on Saturday, right? It, it, it probably could have waited till Sunday. Was having a withered hand a death sentence? Maybe. This isn't the point Jesus is making. He's making the point of no. I came to seek and to save the lost. I came to set the captive free. I came to save the poor. I came to save the oppressed. It's why I came. I came to save life. And yet you and your head are thinking about destroying it. And so, after looking around at them all, he said to them, Stretch out your hand. The man couldn't. Do you realize that? The man's hand was withered. The man's hand was withered. He, he couldn't stretch out his hand. It, it was drawn in. It, it was withered. It was literally dying. If it had been in our culture, it would have been amputated already. I want you to understand that. The man couldn't stretch out his hand. This is the miracle that's happening here. This is the healing that's happening here. 
and stretch out your hand. And he did so, and it was restored. The Lord restored his withered hand. Here's the big idea that I want you to see. Is that Jesus heals withered hearts. That, that every, everybody, everybody is a sinner. And everybody like that man, rather than having a withered hand, we have withered hearts. Our hearts are cold. They are dead they have shriveled up and they have died. And Jesus looks at us just like he looks at that man. And he takes our heart of stone and he turns it into a beating heart. He takes our hearts and, and the scripture said that he opens the eyes of our hearts. That our hearts can see. That our souls, that our withered soul can see. And Jesus, just as he healed this withered man's hand, if you come to Jesus, rather than looking for fault with Jesus, but rather submit to him, when Jesus calls you and says, come to me, you come to him. Jesus cared for the man with the withered hand. Jesus loved him. The Pharisees cared about the law. They loved the law. Jesus loved the man. The Pharisees loved the law. Your love of God will cause you to love people. That, that's, that's how the gospel works. That, that we love God. The first commandment is love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, and all your mind. And the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. Our hearts so often, in our legalism that we, we, we battle with, we could be like the, the Pharisee, that we so look at the law in being good that we fail to see humanity and fail to love humanity. And so you can't say, I love God, and yet go and forsake people. You can't look at the world around us and go, but you're not this way, you're not holy, you're not righteous, you're not living this way, therefore you're not welcomed here. It's rather the opposite. That, that no, we can't forsake people. We have to love people. We're created to be missionaries. We're created to take the gospel to the world. We're not created to be monks. We're not, we're not created to say, oh, oh, we just must live in holiness following all the laws. We, we, no, no, it's that we must take the good news of the gospel to people. We're to be light in a dark world. We're to be in the world, but not of it. And so when Jesus heals withered hearts, we must celebrate. We must rejoice. And we must be the catalyst by the, the vehicle in which people hear the good news. Verse 11, but they were filled with fury and discussed with one another what they might do to Jesus. And my last big idea is this, is you are either going to yell, crucify him, or you're going to accept his invitation to dine at his table. That's your two choices. You're either going to have a legalistic heart, and you're going to be one of the people. If you flip to the book, into the book of Luke, you're going to see that there's essentially two options. 
And, and ultimately, those who wanted to find a way to kill Jesus found a way to kill Jesus. They, they kept on, and they kept on. We're going to see it going throughout the book of Luke that over and over and over that the fury that they had in their heart and what they wanted to do to Jesus, that it ultimately came to reality. Because they did not want to submit to him. They did not want to realize that he was Lord. They did not want to live their lives for him. That they wanted to be control of their own lives. But yet you've got these disciples. This ragtag group of people rejected by the Pharisees. Seen as unclean, as unholy by the Pharisees. Going through the field, popping the grain. Not a worry in the world, following their leader. And the night before, they got their way and said, crucify him. What did Jesus do? But he brought the bread of life to them. Just like we see in Exodus 25, when we see the the loaves of presence put there in the tabernacle to symbolize that the Lord is with his people, that the Lord is communing with his people. So the Lord invites you and I to commune with him. And he did it through his son, Jesus Christ. That Jesus Christ, this is the good news of the gospel. This is the the grace that even in our legalistic hearts, even in our rebellious hearts, either way, that while we were still sinners, God sent his son, Jesus, to die on the cross for our sins. That his body would be broken like that piece of bread. That his body would be destroyed to atone for our sins, to atone um, for our rebellion for our idolatry, and that his blood would be shed, and that his blood would wash away our sins. And so, just as the, the loaves of present, so we celebrate communion. Listen to Luke 22. And when the hour came, he reclined at the table with those same apostles, those same, those same ones. And he said to them, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat it until it's fulfilled in the kingdom of God. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he said, Take this and divide it among yourselves. For I tell you that from now on, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And he took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it, and he gave it to them, saying, This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And likewise, the cup, after they had it eaten, saying, This is the cup that is poured out for you, is the new covenant in my blood. And so today, the way that we're going to respond to this sermon, the way that we're going to respond to this text about Jesus and the eating of the the, the bread on the Sabbath and Jesus being Lord of the Sabbath and the example of David is that we are going to take of the bread of communion. We're going to take of the body of Jesus. This, This is... Just This doesn't save you. This is just a symbolic expression of our faith. Inside this, there is a piece of unleavened bread. It has no yeast in it. Symbolizing it, it has no impurity. It has no sin in it. That's what yeast, yeast would have symbolized. And so, this is for people who believe. By taking this today, what you're doing is making a confession That Jesus Christ is Lord. You're making a confession that you, in taking this, are communing with God and God is communing with you. That means you've placed your faith and trust in Christ. 
You've said, I believed in my heart that God raised his son Jesus from the dead. I believe in my heart that Jesus saved me from my sin and that I cannot save myself from my sin. And so you, you would come up and you'll peel back this top layer and you, I want you to take this back to your seat and you crush that between your teeth. And then you peel back the top and, and we'll, we'll together drink of the, the grape juice that symbolizes his blood like the, like the wine symbolized his, his blood, that his blood is shed for us for the remission of our sins. We're making a confession this morning that we are sinners. Unlike the Pharisees who think that, hey, we can keep every dot and every iota. We're saying, we can't. We can't keep it. Only you can, Jesus. And we're worshiping you. We're trusting in you for salvation. Now, this is for the believer. If today you, 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 don't, you don't believe this, you're just here because somebody invited you or you're just not, not there yet, you're maybe, maybe you're seeking your interest, don't, don't take it. It's kind of weird. It's like really, it, it is. It's a symbolic expression that we're eating body and drinking blood. The Bible also puts up uh, some other things and says that if, if you're in unrepentant sin, if you've got things in your life that you're, you know are wrong and you're unwilling to do, that, that, that lest you drink judgment on yourself, that you shouldn't do them. So my prayer is, is, is that you would evaluate this morning. That you would say, am I clinging to my own righteousness? Am I like the Pharisees? Or am I clinging to Jesus? In this song of response, pray. Cry out to God in prayer and say, Lord, I want to live for you. I want to repent of my sin. I repent. I turn from it. I'm coming to you. And as you do that, as you feel led and you're ready, just, just come up, take of the cup, and go back to your seat. Eat of the bread, and we'll drink of the cup together. So, Father, we thank you, Lord, for the cup this morning. That, Lord, you did not spare yourself, but rather poured yourself out for us. For the Pharisees. Lord, we thank you that you died for the very people who wanted to kill you. That you died for the very people who were in rebellion to you. That's us. So, Lord, let us worship you. Let us repent of our legalism. Let us repent of our self-righteousness, of our clinging to our good works, and not our good works being a fruit of what you've done in our lives, the root of what you've done in our lives, being your death, burial, and resurrection. Lord, grant faith this morning. Grant obedience this morning. Lord, move and work in our hearts. In Jesus' name, amen.